0: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Betsy and Walter Stern Conference Center here at Hudson Institute. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute. I'm delighted that uh, so many folks could join us on what is an absolutely slow news day here in Washington. (laughs) Nothing going on uh, for our event uh, on what what is a very important topic for our country, strengthening America's infrastructure What's next? The deteriorating state of America's infrastructure, as all of us in this audience know, is a major impediment to economic growth in the United States, and we here at Hudson are delighted that rebuilding our nation's roads, bridges, ports, and airports has become such a major priority for the Trump administration, and we're especially delighted that uh, so much is being done in this area under the uh, leadership of our former Hudson Institute colleague, uh, Former distinguished fellow Elaine Chow, who's now gone on to become uh, Secretary of Transportation and I am, as we look at the uh, proposals the administration's coming up with we hope and we think uh, that these proposals will draw heavily on an important new Hudson Institute paper infrastructure spending and public private partnerships uh, that uh, was just published and uh, We're delighted uh, that the author of that paper, the former Deputy Mayor of Indianapolis, former Chief Operating Officer of Indianapolis, uh, and a real leader in uh, public-private partnerships, uh, Skip Stitt, who today is the Senior Director at uh, Fagri Baker Daniels, is here for us to discuss the paper on a panel discussion, which we have a first-class set of uh, discussants. uh, The Honorable Aubrey Lane, the Secretary of Transportation of the State of Virginia. Uh, the, uh, Jennifer Amont, the former, the com- uh, commissioner for the Virginia Port Authority and group general manager for uh, North America at Transurban. Uh, skip, as I mentioned, and the session will be moderated by none other than, uh, David Horner, the former, uh, chief counsel at the Federal Transit Administration, the former deputy assistant secretary for transportation P- policy at the Department of Transportation, and a uh, partner at uh, the law firm of and Williams. But to kick off today's event, I'm honored to be able to introduce Senator John Bozeman of Arkansas, a highly respected voice on Capitol Hill, known for his bipartisan efforts to get things done in Congress. The senator, who was a uh, successful entrepreneur and optometrist, former lineman for the Arkansas Razorbacks, so uh, keep the questions uh, in line, uh, knows and understands more than the overwhelming majority of uh, folks on Capitol Hill about the importance of infrastructure to economic growth, elected to the House in 2002, to the Senate in 2010, Senator Bozeman currently serves on two committees that play a big role in shaping infrastructure legislation, the Committee on Environment and Public Works, and the Committee on Appropriations Subcommittee on Transportation, Housing, and Urban Development. He was a driving force behind the state of Arkansas's World Trade Center, an effort to promote international engagement, has been a vocal advocate of infrastructure reform to spur job creation and improve the quality of life for all Americans, and he is especially focused on calling for uh, infrastructure spending to go beyond what he terms the 3Rs, that is roads rails and runways to include energy water and broadband so we're honored to have the senator keynote today's event he has graciously agreed to take a few questions after his remarks senator Bozeman
1: really is good to be with you all I'm also an optometrist and eye doctor so if you've got any problems with your contacts or glasses or I want some advice about cataracts. I'll be glad to give you some free advice once this is over. I'd rather be introduced as an optometrist. That's a respectable profession. They're one of the, you know, have a very, very high rating. I think we're at about uh, 17 or 18% now, which is actually pretty good, but that's up uh, significantly. That's, that's basically friends, family, and people at work for you, and at the last reunion, you know, which you have these times of the year. I think some of the family's even getting a little nervous now with all that's going on. The uh, I did play football at Arkansas and had a great experience there. I was just kind of a journeyman guy. I had two claims to fame at Arkansas when I was there. The offensive line coach the last two years that I was there was Joe Gibbs, who eventually came up here and did such a tremendous job. And uh, I, was, I can lay claim to the fact that uh, – Myself and two or three others were so uncoachable in college football, he decided to leave and go to the pros. He went from there to to St. Louis. The sad thing is if he were here, he would not disagree with that at all. He'd nod his head. And then my other claim to frame was I was the offensive left tackle when uh, a guy named Joe Ferguson was there that went on to play at Buffalo and played for 18 or 19 years in the NFL as a quarterback. And so for those of you that watched the movie The Blind Side, I was just like uh, the guy there, the left tackle, only I never got any better. And so my guy would run over me, and Joe would run for his life, and I taught him. I tell him, I taught him how to scramble. And he should give me some of that 19 years' worth of retirement. Uh, I was elected in a special election in 2001 and came in and served on the Transportation Committee, Veterans Affairs Committee, and uh, Foreign Affairs. And I can remember I won a special election. Asa Hutchison was serving then. Asa was asked to become head of DEA, took over that post, uh, moved on, and so you had a special election. I just jumped in and did it. I was on the school board. I had a couple friends that uh, had showed interest. I was not political at all. I was on the fair board. Uh, My brother and I had started a clinic that became a, a great big clinic in northwest Arkansas. And so I, had, I encouraged them to run and they basically said, no, you know, we don't want to after a week or so, why don't you did it? And I just did it. And I hadn't really been to Washington. In fact, I hadn't, I hadn't been to Washington until I got elected. So I was up here and uh, got put on the transportation committee. John Paul Hammerschmidt, some of you all remember him that have been around for a while, uh, was a great advocate for infrastructure and did a tremendous job for the state of Arkansas. So I can remember going into the uh, into the transportation committee, sitting down. Back then it had 75 members. Uh, but Schuster stacked it that way so that, you know, if you came out of there with 75 votes uh, and everybody did vote for whatever he wanted because he was able to, with earmarks and things, everybody had a little something in the bills, and it made it a lot easier. But I can remember sitting there, and the guy next to me was uh, Bill Schuster and his dad had, had just left, and uh, Bill had taken his place, and he punched me and he said, I'm so glad you're here. He said, uh, now I'm not the least senior guy. But the committee was so big that, that literally we were sitting where you could lean over and shake hands with the people that were testifying. I think one of the, the things that's made it a little bit more difficult as we try and get things done is, is uh, you know, a lot of these bills now, it's difficult to round up the votes that we need to actually get them passed. And uh, that's, not a, that's not an endorsement of earmarks and indictment or whatever, it's just a fact. It does make it a little bit more, more difficult. Uh, you know, there's lots of talk now about getting things done up here, and there's some truth to that. Most of that is related to budget items. Uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans have real differences as far as spending money and creating new programs and things like that. But it's remarkable, you know, in the last few years we, we did redo a five-year uh, highway bill. The two people that were responsible for getting that done was Senator Inhofe and Senator Boxer. They've got absolutely nothing in common. The Environment and Public Works Committee is as is, is partisan as it can be maybe one of the most partisan committees in Congress regarding the environment, but on the public works side, there's tremendous cooperation. So as a result of their efforts, we were able to get a five-year bill passed. It was very difficult. Uh, But but again, those two worked hard and uh, working with uh, uh, the House, uh, uh, they got it done, but primarily, they were the movers and drivers in the Senate. We were also able in the committee to pass the big uh, rewrite of the chemical uh, Industries Act that hadn't been done since the 1960s in a very, very bipartisan way, as was the highway bill, No Child Left Behind, Lamar Alexander, you know, working hard to get that done. That was the biggest turn back of power to the states in the last 25 years, again, in a very bipartisan way. I say that because we truly can get some really important, some big things done. These aren't glamorous things, but they really are the underpinning of the country. And so, you know, I don't know exactly uh, what we're going to get done in the next couple years, but uh, I do think there's great potential when we talk about things like infrastructure and actually uh, getting a result. I'd like to see, you know, I would argue that, that the reason that we're the great country that we are is the fact that we do have tremendous infrastructure. Places like Brazil, you know, they've got great resources, they've got a cheap workforce, they've got energy, they've got everything you need, but they don't have the infrastructure. They can't transport their products. So when uh, President Eisenhower came forward in the 1950s, created the, the uh, interstate, that truly was a wonderful, uh, it was really a, um, one of the great wonders of the world. Uh, you know, at that time, the fact that we were able to get that done. And again, I would argue that's one of the things that has made us the country that we are. Infrastructure has become more and more important in the sense that now we have on-time delivery. When I was growing up, in fact, you look at our major cities now and you see a bunch of warehouses that, are, that are, don't have anything in them because in the old days you had a lot of, of uh, warehousing space and it's, Stores and things ran out. They go to the warehouse and get it from there. Now we've got these distribution centers and that's why you get in a situation, you go to Target or Walmart or wherever and maybe they haven't planned just right. And, uh, you know, in some cases there's lots of bare shelves just because the, the again, uh, everything is so, so very tight now, not ordering more than you need, uh, which is very, very cost effective. So the infrastructure now is more important than, than, uh, than ever. You mentioned, you know, not just the three R's, roads, railroads, uh, runways. But the other thing that's such a a big deal now is uh, broadband and then also water, energy. All of those things go together. If you don't have them now in this day and age, it simply doesn't work. And so we worked really hard on uh, particularly rural broadband, you know, trying to get it out to, to areas that need it. Our water infrastructure also is, is uh, not in good shape. Uh, and that's going to be something that uh, as our economy grows is going to become more and more important because in many of our highways we get to full capacity. One thing I'd like to see done is, you know, when this, when the highway trust fund started, uh, it essentially was a federal building program. And so the money was used to build an interstate system federal projects. Now we have a formula system. It goes out and uh, essentially there's not much federal projects. It, by formula, it goes to our states. And so that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But certainly some of our uh, federal projects that are important, north-south uh, interstate connections, most of our interstates are built east and west, uh, again, looking at some federal projects that really are important, putting significant dollars in there and getting them finished, I think really is important uh, for the good of the country. Now, in a second, you guys are going to ask me questions, and we'll be glad to, to answer anything you want. The other thing I want to touch on briefly, though, are the, are the three P's, the public-private partnerships. And uh, there's some great success stories in that regard. It's difficult in rural Rural America, and so that's something we're we're trying to be creative, and we're depending on you all to come up with good, you know, good suggestions. The states, in particular, as to how you know how we develop some of these things. But, but going forward, the old days of doing things alone, uh, they simply aren't there. The dollars uh, at the federal level, the dollars at the state level, uh, we simply have to uh, to work together in a better way, more efficient way. But the public-private partnerships really are a real tool in the toolbox uh, that, that work in some, some things. As to why we need to get it done, you know, the, we're, a lot of our infrastructure now is getting to the point where we can, uh, we can repair it and uh, in a cost-effective manner. Some of it, though, it gets to the point where uh, the damage is so great that you can't repair it or it's very expensive to repair or you simply have to rip it out but uh, when you look at our infrastructure report cards, it's, it is pretty dismal. And so as a result, uh, we really do need to get on the stick now, get it done now, and do it in a cost-effective manner. The longer we wait, the harder it's going to get. The other thing I think that is so, so important, and we've tried to do this with the past uh, highway bills, is there's simply no excuse for the delays that it takes The length of time that it takes to for a major project to 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 get done and i don't know you all could probably help me with an exact time but but you know if you've got a major project you're looking at least 10 years and uh, i'm not advocating cutting corners in the sense of doing things we don't need to do Uh, we need to do the the test we need to do the environmental test all of those things but the agencies need to be talking to each other. And a great example of that uh, was when the bridge collapsed in uh, Minneapolis. And that was rebuilt in a year. Uh, any other time you know, to start that project and get it done, it would have taken uh, probably decades you know, to get done. Uh, but what you had there was people on site. The agencies were talking to each other. You didn't have the gotcha attitude. You had the attitude of how can we be helpful, you know, proactive, you know, the, the regulators saying, look, you need to do this or that. And as a result, we had a very, very efficient uh, uh, way of getting that done, and it saved a tremendous amount of money, uh, not only in the construction of the bridge, but also in the, uh, the economic output, uh, you know, the, the economic devastation that it created by being down in the first place. So all of these projects, if they're done right, uh, you know, you're not only creating jobs uh, that, that uh, as you build the project, that's a secondary issue. Uh, this really is about all about jobs, jobs, jobs in the sense of doing these things, uh, whether it's a road or a water project, uh, then you're talking about the economic positive consequences that come about once you get that completed. And that's, that is a very, very good deal. And so one of the You know, one of the neat things about being a a congressman or a senator or whatever, in fact, the neatest thing is using the power of the office for good. And I get to do a lot of special things, uh, but, but you know, having a situation, veterans affairs, uh, you name it, immigration problems, the list goes on and on. But one of the favorite things is working hard, getting a group together, that's having troubles completing a, a water project where literally Uh, You know, in this day and age, you've got people hauling water, uh, you know, using uh, bad water to flush their toilets and all that, hauling their drinking water in. Uh, That goes on all over the country right now in in fairly uh, some areas, you know, where you've got significant population. But working hard, bringing the stakeholders together, talking to the different agencies, seeing who can do what, and just kind of putting all this together. You get that done, you know, people have water, changes their lives, but it also changes their property values, the area starts to grow, and, and it's a big deal. So that is so, so important. Like I say, the, we've got some new things going on now with broadband and things that are, that are also very, very important as we, as we go forward. Now, I will be glad to answer any easy questions that you've got, or if you've got some comments, if you've got some good ideas for me as to what we need to be doing, or... Uh, whatever. I, I'll tell you, you know, the, the question, I'll, I'll give you the first question, you know, what do you forecast as to, you know, getting these things done, which is so important. As I mentioned, you know, uh, we do have uh, prior history in, in the not too distant past at all uh, of, of getting some major things done. Uh, infrastructure <coughs> is very, very bipartisan. I think we've got a good chance of getting something done. As to what that's going to look like, I have no idea. I know the president is invested. He wants to do something. Uh, Congress wants to do something. The, you know, the, the, the real key is, how do you pay for it? And we are at the point now where we really need to look hard at that. We're $20 trillion in debt. Uh, we're running $500 billion deficits every year, adding to the debt. And we're getting ourselves in a situation, you know, the, the the importance of that. And you all are business people, and your your people, you know, that that uh, have the ability to, to to really understand these things. In the sense that, uh, right now, we're we're paying a very very low interest rate, lowest interest rate ever. It's about two percent to service the debt. Uh, I think it cost about two hundred twenty five billion dollars. Don't hold me exactly to those numbers, but it's in that range someplace. Uh, for every 1% increase again not not exactly but you're talking about 1.7 trillion dollars or so over 10 years historically what do you think it's taken to service the debt what what do you think instead of 2% what what is it normally it's 5 to 6% so interest rates are going to creep up there's no ifs ands or buts in fact under the present course that we're going It's anticipated, I believe, uh, you know, the servicing the debt will triple in the next 10 years. So, you know, you get in a situation where you simply you are using all of your your resources to service the debt. We're not going to get in that situation, but it's going to, you know, that becomes very, very crippling. It's like uh, overextending on your credit card things, and you say, well, John, you know, this is the United States. It's not going to happen here. Every place it's happened, that was the attitude. So we really have to, you know, these are things that we do have to watch. We need to to, uh, to, recognize. The other side of it, though, is I think you could argue spending on infrastructure, which is not true of spending on everything, but spending on infra- infrastructure, getting the regulatory burden under control. And I don't know what's going to happen, you know, the next three and a half years, but I can promise you the regulatory burden is going to be better. Okay? Not, not where we're not protecting things and doing what we need, but just the regulatory burden that we face right now really is tremendous. And uh, you don't that doesn't cost you any money, that saves you a bunch of money. Okay. Does anybody got a question? Yes, sir. Thank you for being here today.
2: My name is Rex with Northern Resource. Thank you for being here today. My name is Rex Wempin with Northern Resource. Sorry, and my question to you today is given uh, the plethora of new technologies proliferating today, specifically, for an example, would be Hyperloop, how would a private developer, perhaps not interested in going through some kind of uh, government directed process, but who has their own idea and their own funding for a project, come to uh, uh, maybe accelerate the development project beyond the, the 10 years, for example? Would they go straight to the federal government, or h- how would you suggest this work? Thank you.
1: Well, it depends on, uh, you know, one thing that we, we really do have to remember is, is that roads are not the federal government's responsibility. Roads are the state government's responsibility. It's always been that way. Uh, sadly, what's happened is, my frustration is, is that we've, as we've formalized the uh, highway trust fund, you know, giving it back to the states. In fact, when I was first elected, uh, I went around with Tom Petri, who was the, the head of the roads subcommittee on transportation, we went all over the place. And we were on the west coast, the east coast, uh, New Orleans, looking at projects and stuff. And back then the argument as we go to the editorial boards was, why should we do this? You know, we're sending a dollar to Washington and we're getting 90 cents back or whatever it was. Now you send a dollar to Washington and you get a dollar thirty back. Okay? That doesn't work. So we've got to get that under control because we simply don't have those dollars. So we're we've federalized, you know, more and more of the state function. And again, the dollars simply aren't up here. A frustration is is the more money you give to the states, and I'll get to your question in a second, but the more money you get to the states, there's a tendency for them not to push ahead. What they do is they're all broke, uh, and, and that's not a, a cut. It's just the reality they're facing the same situations that we have here, only they got balanced budget amendments. You know, they've got to live within their means, and so you give them more money, and what they'll wind up doing is is pulling back, you know, the money that they were going to spend on on transportation because they got a little bit more money, and then they're pushing it into Medicaid, you know, the healthcare aspect, prisons, and K through 12, you know, things like that. So. I, to be honest that the 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 primary thing you've got to look at is is your state you know your highway commission in arkansas we have a highway commission that is independent of the you know the legislature working through them working through your highway commissioner you know as to what you can do it depends on you know how you're tying in if you're tying into the interstate system or a you know a national highway then all of that would factor into it but i do think that that right now there is a willingness to work with you, okay? And, and I would encourage you, any of you all, as you go forward, you know, looking at those kind of projects, uh, you know, let us know. We'll be glad to intervene and see if we can help make it work. See what I'm saying? And that might be a legislative fix, or it might be that, that we do, you know, in the next highway bill or, or sooner through the appropriations bill. Or just seeing if the agencies themselves <laughs> Uh, you know, we'll we'll look and uh, kind of think outside the box as we, you know, as we try and solve whatever problem you're trying to do. Very much, but that's what it's going to take. Is you know, people like you, you know. Yes, sir. In future,
3: how will the federal highway? Just an easy one. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, David Horner, Huntington and Williams. Sure. In future, how will the federal highway program be funded? Tolls versus gas tax at the moment what is your, what is your thinking it's a real challenge I, i'm not a guy that that really believes in in
1: tolling existing roads i don't have any problems with tolling new roads uh, the problem with tolling is and there's lots of areas that work like in this part of the country you know tolling works because you've got uh, so much traffic in the rural areas it doesn't work you know you simply don't have the volume and uh, so as a result uh tolling um, existing roads, I, I, again, I'm really not in favor of doing that. New roads, yes. That's that's the real challenge. You know, the highway trust fund in, at the state level and the federal level is flat. The reason for that is a good thing is that, that cars get a lot better mileage than they used to get. And and uh, the fleet is, is young enough now with that good gas mileage. It's not like when I was growing up and you got eight or nine miles a, a gallon. You were grateful to get that but now cars really are efficient and they're going to get more efficient and so that's the challenge is how do you you know how do you uh, to get that revenue in there and then the economy uh, it's been a little bit uh, flat for the last you know several years uh, still flat uh, maybe picking up a little bit but still flat uh, and as a result uh, people people's habits have changed you know they're they're simply not driving as much uh, public transportation uh, somewhat. It's interesting about public transportation, you know, everybody wants their neighbor to take the bus, but they don't want to take it. And the thing that dictates uh, ridership is parking. Uh, And if you live in a place, you know, if Washington had great parking and uh, you could park any place you wanted to, there wouldn't be any public transportation, you know. uh, That's that's the thing that dictates it worldwide, is, is your ability to park, so. And as you all know better than anybody, being here, uh, parking is a tough, a tough problem here. And so, uh, we do have good, good public transportation, which, which again is important, and uh, we need to do our part to, to help with that for lots of different reasons. But that's the challenge. And you know, gas taxes, things like that. Uh, uh, what we should have done in the early 2000s during that highway bill is at least. Uh, uh, made it such that with inflation, you know, it increased. And that would have been a big help. But we're looking at, you know, it's been a long, long time since, we, you know, the, I guess the, the 1990s, you know, since we had an increase. And, and so with the uh, increase in inflation, building roads, the increase in commodity prices and stuff, we've lost a lot of buying power, again, with the fact that the uh, the trust fund is flat anyway because of mileage.
4: Yes, sir. Uh, Tom Dusterberg Hudson Institute, um, Senator. Did you what role, if any, do you see for the federal government play in
0: broadband deployment?
1: I think it's I think it's big. In fact, I was I had a uh, on the appropriations the the Commerce Justice uh, subcommittee. I I just left this morning. Wilbur Ross was testifying over there, and that's the question that I asked him. You know what what are we doing? Because as I mentioned. Uh, you know, you can have pretty good infrastructure, but if you don't have broadband, uh, the, the, the type of jobs that a community would like to attack, attract, uh, they simply aren't going to come. And it is amazing. Uh, you know, you travel throughout the country and stuff, and uh, uh, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a huge problem. So it's almost, I think we're in a situation almost like with uh, rural electrification. You know, the, the fact that, that we went through that not too many years ago, uh, getting the country electrified I think it, it really is something that the federal government is gonna need to provide some money some resources and then a lot of leadership and really encouraging uh, public-private partnerships to get that done but it, it is a big problem and and so much of uh, so much of government it's not fair to, to go to a system where you you want the public to do things online uh, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, whether it's the IRS, or so many things that you have to do online in dealing with it. The, and then, uh, you know, then you live someplace where there simply is no, no line to get onto, you know. Uh, so, uh, I'm myself, Shelley Moore Capito, some others uh, form the Rural Broad, Broadband Caucus. Uh, and we're trying to educate members on that importance and then also trying to come up with some solutions. Uh, That are cost effective so that we can move forward. It's a big deal. Yes, sir. You've got a
5: great voice, anyway. I need to. About the international competition. And opportunities. Specifically China launched the new Silk Road, 40 billion dollars already available. They are building railways and uh, from uh, Hungary to Greece and so on and Japan decided this week to join China's big scheme. Uh, how would you integrate this in your national strategy? My suggestion is to have various states as beds for uh, best practices and to become both partners and competition because competitors, because America still has innovation which is needed. So beyond becoming just clients for Japanese and Chinese, how would you operate at local level and what would the federal government should do about this?
1: So are you advocating or asking about us getting involved in other countries to...
5: To. How to get involved in international competition and partnerships yeah. like Chinese and Japanese? I understand both of them offered project to the United States, to various states. So, how to be proactive
6: when well, things are moving at, at the global level? sustainable development goals is an agenda until 2030. So,
5: there's a lot of mobilization and knowledge accumulated. In my modest opinion, the United States has everything in terms of innovation, entrepreneurship
6: the cases to gave here that
5: others can learn and to build up as
1: quickly as possible partnership within local state level. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I agree. I mean, that's certainly something that we need to be involved in. And, and the reality is, and, and I don't mean this in a braggadocious way at all, but as somebody that was on the Foreign Affairs Committee, somebody that was on the NATO uh, Parliament, and somebody that uh, uh, traveled with the... Uh, all oh, the group that, that went into young democracies. I've had the opportunity to be in many, many different places. And, and uh, I'll tell you, when the Americans walk in, it doesn't matter if we're talking about infrastructure, it doesn't matter if we're talking about being an eye doctor or whatever. Our European partners, our partners all over the world, really do look, look for us for leadership. And, uh, in the past, we've done a good job of providing that. We still need to do it. China's a problem in the sense that, uh, certainly they're very, very active in, in Africa. And, uh, we can be very proud of the work that we've done in Africa as far as food relief and, you know, things like that, our infrastructure ourselves. The Millennium Challenge account has been a great success where you actually give them aid. And then they have to go through steps. Uh, many of them completing projects that they didn't think they had a clue, you know, of, of being able to do. Or, but with some help, and then you know, holding their feet to the fire, they get it done. They get excited, and then they want to do other projects. Uh, but uh, the Chinese have a tendency to be takers, you know, rather than givers. And I don't want to over-characterize that, but it's just the way it is. And. Uh, so, but we need to, we need to be present. And, uh, and then the other thing is we can't be so proud that we can't look at, at some of their management practices as to what they're doing because they really are building some major projects. The Chinese have a situation where they've got to, uh, the coast are prosperous, inland China, not so much. Because of their population, you know, they probably have to create over 20 million jobs a year. To prevent civil unrest so they have a tremendous stake you know in in driving their economy forward and uh, so that drives a lot of their behavior but I but I don't disagree and, and, and again we need to we need to be a part of that okay thank you all so much and uh, again I appreciate all you all do anything I can do to help you sure let us know. thank you
0: appreciate it. Senator, thank you for the very thoughtful remarks, and best of luck in trying to work across party lines on the critical issues that uh, you addressed. I'd like to welcome our panel of uh, transportation all-stars to come up here, and I will turn the microphone over to David Horner. I should also note, just as a matter of uh, public record, that David is the son of a Longtime Hudson Senior Fellow Charles Horner himself a specialist on China and Japan among other things and yes, so yes, it's yes. A, with real pride that uh, uh, turn the microphone over to David.
3: Ken, that's very kind. Thank you. Well, <clears throat> so again, welcome, welcome to our discussion of American national infrastructure policy. Uh, Before I introduce our panelists, I should uh, like to set the table with a few observations for our discussion. Uh, First, to his credit, a few presidents have focused on infrastructure policy more visibly and earlier in their administrations than President Trump. In his inaugural address, President Trump twice promised renewal of the nation's infrastructure, and in the five months since taking office, he has gradually unfolded his vision for national infrastructure policy, first in January by issuing a series of presidential memoranda and executive orders on environmental permitting, then in May by outlining an infrastructure initiative in his 2018 budget, and now, this week, by making a series of speeches on air traffic control privatization inland waterway con- reconstruction and repair the nation's rails and roads. While the Administration has yet to produce a bill for Congress to advance these blueprints, the issue of national infrastructure policy is receiving a level of presidential attention that is very much welcomed and perhaps unprecedented since President Eisenhower launched construction of the Interstate Highway. At the center of President. Uh, At the center of the President's infrastructure program are four policy levers, so to speak, uh, that should be noted as background for our discussion. Uh, Specifically, the administration proposes first to reform federal regulations for permitting large-scale projects in order to shorten planning lead times and accelerating uh, construction. Uh, Second, to create incentives for public-private partnerships that harness private capital Uh, private sector innovation and operational expertise. Third, to increase federal credit support for projects of national and regional significance in lieu of increasing grant funding for infrastructure. And fourth, to relax federal restrictions on charging user fees such as roadway tolls or water usage charges, charges in order to create new revenue streams for infrastructure. When combined with the administration's proposed infrastructure funding commitment of $200 billion, these reforms are intended to deliver the president's headline figure of $1 trillion in infrastructure investment over 10 years. But will these reforms work as envisioned? Will the president's program even be enacted? Are alternatives to his program realistic in an era of constrained resources? And does federal policy really matter when so many states have stopped waiting for direction and support from Washington and have already gone it alone in terms of transportation policy, including funding decisions. To help us through these issues, we are fortunate to have three panelists from the front lines of U.S. infrastructure development representing multiple perspectives. First, uh, in the middle, is Skip Stitt, author of Hudson's recent report, Infrastructure Spending and Public-Private Partnerships, and former senior deputy mayor and COO of the city of Indianapolis under Mayor Steve Goldsmith, a great policy innovator. Skip is now a senior director at Fager Baker Daniels Consulting, where he focuses on infrastructure, public-private partnerships. We have, to my immediate right, The Honorable Aubrey Lane, Virginia's Secretary of Transportation and Chairman of Virginia's Commonwealth Transportation Board. Prior to becoming Virginia Transportation Secretary, Secretary Lane served as a member of Virginia's Commonwealth Transportation Board for five years during the administrations of former Virginia Governors Tim Kaine and Bob McDonald. And lastly, uh, far right, my far right, your far left, is Jennifer Ahmet, Group General Manager, North America for Transurban, the Australian road developer that constructed, financed, and now operates in partnership with the Virginia Department of Transportation, the 495 Express Lanes and the I-95 Express Lanes in Northern Virginia. And she also serves as a commissioner of the Virginia Port Authority. And I'm pleased to mention that they are collaborators in the field of infrastructure development both Secretary Lane and Jen, uh, who, uh, in addition to having a number of projects on the board, have just signed this morning um, a further agreement uh, to advance a public-private partnership in Northern Virginia, about which they can tell us a few things during the course of our discussion. So having set the table that way, I'd like to ask questions of our panelists and begin the conversation to be followed by uh, questions. Uh, from the audience so Jen may I begin with you Uh, there's a lot to get our arms around when it comes to national infrastructure policy but I have mentioned a handful of items that (coughs) have been uh, highlighted by the Trump administration as policy levers for affecting infrastructure renewal in the United States including tolling user charges accelerating environmental permitting public-private partnerships, and the like. What is your general reaction to this suite of policy initiatives? And do you think that they have a prospect for making a difference in the United States?
7: Absolutely. I think I'd note um, first, and perhaps uncharacteristically, um, that – um, and first, before I say that, I do want to thank, and I know my colleagues will as well, the Hudson Institute for hosting this conversation. I mean, the more dialogues that we can have um, the combine policymakers and, and those of us on the ground who are moving transportation forward, I think that's um, both on the public side and private side, that's how we're going to find these solutions. So thank you very much for the Institute. Um, when you look at um, uh, President Trump's uh, principles and the specific policies that the administration has advocated in their budget proposal, A few things stand out, and I think, one, I may say uncharacteristically, um, that um, as someone who is a private investor in infrastructure and plays the private side of the partnership, uh, that first and foremost we need to make sure that when we're talking about these policies that we always keep um, new revenues at the top of the of the list. Um, you know, if we're going to solve transportation problems in the U.S., there is no magic bullet. We're not the magic bullet. Ultimately, we're going to need a, a sustainable funding source for transportation. Whether that's in the in the um, form of, of a gas tax, a vehicle miles traveled, or user user pay, um, but some means. To get genuine revenue to the system but obviously we're very pleased to see that the administration has prioritized um, public-private partnerships as a means to be able to get big projects moving forward and in places like virginia we've been able to work together to prove the benefits of that Uh, if you take uh, the secretary and i have the 95 express lanes project the state will have received 110 times return on their investment in the 95 project, um, uh, reduced congestion in the regular lanes, provided new choices, funded um, what will be billions of dollars in transit improvements in that corridor. Um, it's a project that's been a success for us, and we, we know it will continue to be a success for our investors as well. So this is a proven model. And I think where we hope that the Trump administration will take this model is to, in a couple of ways. One, to move beyond providing information to states but provide meaningful incentives for states to look at public-private partnerships as a means to move their transportation programs forward and to also remove the barriers to move these projects forward quickly. Um, and that's a popular theme for professionals that are on the ground in transportation. We'll signed a contract today on a project that took 10 years to develop. GAO will tell you that most take 9 to 19 years to develop it. Um, that's why infrastructure investors around the world – are putting billions and hundreds of billions of dollars into infrastructure in other countries um, because of the the obstacles we have to do that. So we're very pleased to see in the administration's proposal uh, certainly a commitment to addressing some of those obstacles.
3: Secretary Lane, thank you very much for joining us. What is broadly your reaction to these concepts, and which do you think has more promise than the other? What are the weak points, strengths, if any? How do you see it?
4: Uh, again, thank you. Uh, as Jen mentioned, I'm glad your hopes in this today. I think it's very important we continue the conversation. And I, I tend to agree a lot with what President Trump uh, has, uh, has uh, laid out. Um, we have been a big believer in public-private partnerships in Virginia, uh, and we've had a great partner with Transurban. But everything has not been all smooth sailing. Um, and um, I think when we talk to Skip, one of the things he'll bring out in this paper, there's a big learning curve uh, to this. I certainly uh, think we need to keep in mind it is a great procurement tool. Uh, It is uh, not a substitute for funds. Uh, We do need sustainable funds. Uh, And then I would also caution uh, that uh, we not let political ideology get into it. In other words, we look at this on a deal-by-deal basis and make sure that we're picking the right procurement. Uh, I believe there's a lot of places where the private sector and the public sector overlap. But we do need to keep in mind we do have different fiduciary responsibilities, and that's not bad. It's just the way it works. And I think there's lots of opportunities where they do overlap, like we've done in Virginia. But, uh, again, uh, it is a different type of procurement. The traditional relationship between citizen and government is changed because these are governed by contracts. Yes. Uh, it's a lot different, uh, and, but yet you're still responsible. Um, so... Encouraged, uh, but do not believe it's the only answer, although certainly reducing the amount of time necessary for uh, uh, permits makes Mm -hmm. a great deal of sense. Enhancing credit alternatives Mm -hmm. uh, that sort of level the playing field with the uh, private sector as long as they're giving a public benefit, I think that makes a lot of sense. We have not had any issue attracting capital in Virginia. Mm -hmm. In fact, today, with what you just announced with uh, Jen on 395, We've got some $4 billion worth of P3 projects under a commercial uh, contract going to close. So uh, I believe there's a lot of opportunity. As the senator did say, they don't fit every, you know, uh, project. There's got to be other monies uh, that are available. But generally agree that uh, with you and the president that his focus on it it is key to moving uh, us forward, and uh, I believe it's a good start.
3: Well, those are, those are great points, one of which I'd like uh, Skip to comment on, which is you mentioned, Secretary, that um, projects for PPP procurement need to be chosen with care and that these procurement techniques are novel in the United States. Skip, can you, can you comment on how the public sector can begin to gear up to address this new trend in procurement of megaprojects, and what should they be alert to?
8: in terms of uh, traps for the unwary well first of all uh, thanks again to the Hudson Institute for having us Uh, great opportunity to be here today to talk about this important issue Um, our experience we started this about 25 years ago in Indianapolis uh, where we did some what were then very large public-private partnership transactions involving uh, wastewater and airport management and what struck us at the time was Uh, how little we on the public sector side uh, knew. These were issues of first impression to us. No one had done a large-scale airport privatization in the U.S. And we found ourselves in dealing with the provider community sitting across the table from folks who had done this uh, multiple times, in some cases dozens of times. And in the water-wastewater arena, uh, I distinctly remember uh, the first transaction we did. The collective experience on our side of the table on the municipality was – that transaction that was the first one we'd ever done and the provider community on the other side of the table had done over a hundred transactions and so uh, we encourage people don't start with the largest asset you have uh, you probably don't want to start um, with with a massive uh, airport or water wastewater project start with something smaller begin to build competency inside your organization now I think over the last 25 years we've seen Uh, increasing parity on the advisor side between the public sector and the private partners Um, but this this won't work for every project it's not a panacea Uh, so begin to build competency internally really pay attention to what you're doing um, and and build those skills over time and whenever possible uh, steal it from your neighbors right Uh, if you're you're gonna work in the toll road arena you gotta be talking to Virginia and other states that have done it
3: well Of course, one of the internal competencies that a government needs in order to advance a public-private partnership successfully is an awareness of the commercial imperatives on the private side. Uh, Jen, Transurban runs roads around the world. Um, You've been exposed to multiple jurisdictions in the United States and abroad. When you face a new project proposition from the public, what are some of the questions you ask yourself to determine whether the project is viable?
7: I think the, the, to take it, probably first step we do is look up above the project level to the environment in which we would be making the investment. Um, political stability is very important. Um, certainty of process is very important. Um, and that's why um, Virginia has certainly been um, was uh, <clears throat> where we wanted to do business uh, because they had both. And bipartisan support for public-private partnerships—an environment that we could depend on um, uh, for transparency and process, and fairness and process. Um, another thing that we look at ultimately, um, when we look at projects, and I hope that this is something that we would have in common with our government counterparts, is alignment of interests. Um, I think that our advice on um, to both the private side and public side is the the best way to. Um, make a public-private partnership successful is to make sure that the parties in, involved have an alignment of interests. Um, and you'll hate that I am saying this, but, but we spend far too much time uh, looking at the intricacies and detailed uh, negotiating single lines of contracts, although we have great lawyers to do it, right? But um, it's really, a, it's more important to make sure that at the fundamental level, your incentives are aligned. Um, Secretary Lane doesn't have to call me or bang his fist on the table to tell me to treat the customers fairly, my customers and his constituents. I'm incentivized to do that fundamentally because I've taken revenue risk for a period of decades on a $3 billion investment that we've made in equity and debt uh, on his network. And so I'm incentivized every day to get up and make sure we're taking care of his constituents, that they have a a good good trip, that they're being treated fairly, that they're getting value for money, um, that the product is safe and quality, uh, it's not the contract that drives us to do that it's our incentives to do that ease incentivized to make sure that I can be successful in business because if I am successful then we're going to be generating what is billions of dollars for money for public transit uh, and and billions more in in uh, revenue sharing back to the Commonwealth so aligning those incentives at the in those objectives at the fundamental level is the most important thing to make sure that the project is a success long term
3: well I'd like to introduce a kind of variation on the topic that we've discussed so far, which is PPPs for the procurement of new construction. And here are the panel's views on an alternative kind of PPP or public-private partnership known as an asset monetization, which is essentially is a disposition of a government enterprise by means of a long-term lease, long-term contract for a large upfront payment for the account of the public very different from the so-called Greenfield PPPs that are delivering new assets of the sort that <laughs> Secretary Lane and Jen have delivered and signed this morning. Um, in Australia, there is a uh, national policy, or it was, until it, was uh, until it expired by its terms under statute, a program that incented provinces to dispose By way of long-term lease or outright privatization of legacy infrastructure in exchange not only from the – for the upfront payment it would receive from a private acquirer of the interest, but also, importantly, on account of a one-time extraordinary bonus paid by the national government to that province to incent the transaction, to incent the province to privatize or to engage in a PPP disposition. Secretary Lane – We understand from news reports that the Trump administration is considering such a program. It's called Asset Recycling, Divesting to Invest, but we haven't seen it in any of the official documentation yet. While the Trump administration is still formulating that policy, evidently, what advice would you give them on how to construct an asset recycling program, a program that incents infrastructure dispositions?
4: Senator mentioned that uh, our highway system was uh, started with the government, the federal government, uh, being involved with its construction and, and its well-being. A little different than in Australia, so sort mostly of things over, had a chance to visit over there uh, and uh, talk with a lot of their investors, and that was privatization pretty much from the very beginning. Uh, in that. So they have a different understanding uh, than what I would say most of the public here does about infrastructure and its benefits and and its associated costs. We've mm-hmm. gone for many years in this country, they didn't think we have to invest in it, it was going to still be there. None of these provisions on their sur- surface uh, uh, are bad. It's how they're employed, or good, it's how they're employed. Uh, asset recycling in the proper context could make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I do worry that sometimes we're incentivizing somebody to because they want the bonus to maybe do something they wouldn't. Mm-hmm. But assuming that you get uh, that discipline, uh, that may make some sense. We had an unfortunate example that it didn't work. Uh, we tried to force it at the Port of Virginia, right. where we had an operating asset that was key. And, and, and it's been mentioned before. It's just not the operations of the asset. It's how it affects the economy and how it affects the public. Uh, very key, one in eight jobs, depending on what statistic you look at, at the port of, uh, in Virginia are supported indirectly or directly by that port. It was a time of, of uh, a diminished uh, frequency of containers, and so the price being offered for the port mm-hmm. was at a low. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet ideology sort of drove the fact that, hey, this may, this is what we should do. We don't have any money. We should do this. And as it turned out, and Jen was a commissioner at the time, and as secretary, it's one of the agents report to me, they made the right decision to say this doesn't make sense.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, and it, the port's flourishing now. In fact, we're investing and in, in, in moving forward under, a, under the state maintaining it. So my caution would be it that let's make sure that the tools we're given are being used for the outcomes that are desired.
6: Mm-hmm.
4: not given tools just because because you heard the senator again say everybody's struggling, that money looks awful good. you know mm-hmm. let's take the two billion dollars, not, notwithstanding that maybe be worth $5 billion mm-hmm. but with two billion in hand. And so it tends to incentivize uh, unless you have uh, maybe the behavior you don't want unless you have a disciplined approach, and that gets back to what Skip talked about—a team, and uh, of how you evaluate these projects. Uh, and in the political arena, uh, that gets a lot of pressure because yeah. you've got you know people up there saying, "I campaigned on this, I want this, and you know I'm going to make this happen before I leave office." And that puts the public sometimes at a little disadvantage in in their negotiating positions.
3: Well, though. let me ask then a question of uh, Skip first: Is it and this may strike you as naive, is it just about the money? What, what other rationales drive the decision of a locality to grant a long-term concession of, say, its water system?
8: Well, I, I think the financial impact is obviously uh, important. We discourage clients from doing uh, purely financial transactions, um, simply extracting the value out of an asset Uh, if all you're doing is financing the transaction, can be an inefficient way to generate revenue. So we we talk to clients about how do you improve the operations, improve the service to customers, improve the environmental outcomes. When that's part of the transaction and you can simultaneously extract value, that begins to make uh, a lot more sense, uh, we think. And in terms of the the asset recycling, which is a, a concept I like, Um, I come from a a city government background, and that's what mayors and cities do frequently when they do public-private partnership transactions, right? They have an operational challenge or they have a financial need, and the way they address that is through a public-private partnership, whether it's on a a parking garage or on-street parking or a golf course or a water-wastewater utility or their solid waste collections, and they extract value out out of that operation to meet another need. Uh, And very often it's completely unrelated to that area. There's enormous pressure on uh, pensions around the country, and we're seeing communities and states turn to public-private partnerships to address pension issues. But a number of them, including projects where we've had the privilege of being involved, are to pull those resources out and reinvest them in other civil infrastructure. Uh, And it may be in the water wastewater arena, it may be on uh, removing lead pipes or improving your combined sewer overflow performance so I think particularly at the municipal level we are seeing people do this without the incentive I think the incentive is is a concept worth considering because the, the limiting factor in this arena right now and we were talking about it earlier is transactional volume there is no shortage of financial resources there's hundreds of billions of dollars waiting in the wings to invest uh, there are highly skilled, very mature uh, providers uh, who've done this many, many times. The the missing element in the ecosystem are uh, public partners who are interested in moving forward. So to the extent you can create more opportunities, i supportive of the strategies that would do
7: that. We've certainly um, – you know, Transurban is uh, based in Australia, so we've been um, able to see the um, – asset recycling program uh, put to work, put to action, particularly in states like New South Wales, um, where they've done a, a very good job of, of taking advantage of that program to move their infrastructure forward. Um, and so that's where I mentioned earlier about the, the opportunity the federal government has now in a program like asset recycling to move from information providing and technical assistance to providing that real incentive so states who are best positioned to look at their assets and determine what which may be appropriate for a privatization, as we have done in, in Virginia, both on and say no in some cases, like the Port of Virginia, and yes in other cases, um, to be able to maximize the, the benefit of the assets they have. And I tell you if, you, if you take this in the U.S. context, it might not look exactly like the, the Australian program, but if you take the concept generally and you apply it to the U.S., we're talking about significant value here. Take just the top 10 public toll road agencies in the U.S. today. Take just the top 10 based on recent transactions. We value that at about 260 to 280 billion dollars. And, and through an asset recycling program, those toll roads could generate another 150 billion dollars that could be put to work on greenfield uh, projects that would help build, rebuild um, other parts of our infrastructure. So um, I would encourage uh, the Trump administration and others to take this Opportunity to assess this concept very seriously um, because it does would provide a, a tremendous opportunity in the U.S. to unlock some of this private capital, build the pipeline, and get these projects moving forward.
3: And with the with the federal commitment and that 280 billion bucks, we're halfway to a trillion. That's so, right. right. Yeah. Speaking of uh, models abroad, I'd like to touch on the identity of owners national identity of owners, of interests in U.S. infrastructure. Uh, Secretary Lane, uh, you are a steward of an an immense transportation network in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, You have an active PPP program. Infrastructure attracts capital from around the world of all flavors, stripes, and colors. And naturally, the public may take an interest in the national identity of the owner of an of infrastructure that is providing a public service. What are your views on they kind of restricting or scrutinizing uh, the sources of infrastructure capital for investment in the United States?
4: Well, notwithstanding what Skip said, uh, all the money is green to me. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, obviously, um, that is an issue with the public uh, because the often I hear is that I'm paying a toll now, and it's going to some foreign country. Mm -hmm. So while I think that's important, uh, if we're going to enter these projects, uh, that is important upon the public officials to demonstrate that it's in the best interest of the taxpayers. The way we've done that in Virginia, we've reformed our P3 laws, and we have a competitive process where I can stand up, in fact, I have to by law and certify that this is in the best interest of the public. And I can stand up in front of them and say, "We could not perform this service as efficiently. It is in your best interest, and it includes customer service and all." In fact, that is a great point. Um, we've had some issues in Virginia, not with not with Jen's company, Transurban, um, but we now put in our contracts performance standards, uh, and because it is uh, still servicing the same constituencies, a little bit different. Um, uh, outcome. So um, from my perspective, that's the key. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly I would guess if there was any really national security interest, or if that would be taken care of just by the filter being able to do business here. Uh, but if we can stand up, because many of these are multinational companies. Um, uh, uh, in fact, uh, Australia, I mean, all, Europe, uh, we have not done any of the Far East, uh, at least in transportation, Um, but uh, that is the key, to be able to stand up and say we are providing and we have the controls in place to monitor the contract Mm -hmm. and make sure the performance standards are met. Uh, And I think under those terms, we welcome, as I said, Virginia has not had any issues attracting private capital in here, and so um, I don't see any overriding issues uh, in terms of the the, uh, the nationality of the capital, with the caveat that we must prove to the public mm-hmm. uh, that it is in their best interest, and uh, in both in terms of financially, operationally, and that. So it that's the way on the value stands on the value proposition.
7: I'll, I'll tell you the the the. Green cash that that uh, Secretary Lane referred to affectionately. I think <laughs> um, I'll tell you. Our as a foreign company, um, uh, we are putting investors' money uh, to work from very exotic places like uh, Dallas. Yeah, that's right. Chicago. (laughs) That's right. So, and obviously uh, other places around the world. So I think that the mix here is is, um, this is a global market without question, including um, coming from uh, sources here in the United States. And Mm -hmm. the key is uh, the the people that are in front of that investment, making sure you have experienced practitioners uh, who can help translate that capital into projects that that work and meet both commercial and policy outcomes. And I think that's what's going to shape The players in the U.S. moving forward, um, it's not going to be, are they going to be from Saudi Arabia or are they going to be from Australia? It's going to be players who have demonstrated and continue to demonstrate an ability to maneuver through the U.S. process to effectively put that capital to work on real projects that solve real problems in communities.
8: I, I, I agree with the comments that have been made, but it is an issue and people just need to be aware of it. Um, Twenty-five years ago when we did our first big wastewater transaction, it was with United Water, which is the U.S. subsidiary of a Paris-based firm, uh, and people just freaked out. I mean, it was it was incredible. I mean, newspaper articles and letters to the editor and TV ads, uh, and then after that, we, we did a large airport privatization with the British Airports Authority, which is based in London, and again, everybody just... just Got incredibly upset about it, and part of it was, you know, local intramural politics. But there were people that are real concerned. So it's not a concern for me. But as you do projects, I think uh, participants need to be cognizant of those of those issues. Get out in front of them, uh, address them, uh, and be prepared to demonstrate that that's the best value uh, and best customer service you can get for your money. Before we. Um open
3: up for questions and just a last question on the theme of international relations. We're seeing increasingly today uh, foreign policy intersect with U.S. infrastructure policy. Uh, We have seen, for example, um, the Abe administration in Japan uh, propose what could be characterized as a reverse Marshall Plan uh, for the United States to commit Uh, Japanese resource to invest in U.S. infrastructure. Uh, We see the uh, Silk Road One Belt One Road program of the PRC. Uh, We read of uh, Saudi Arabia and the private equity sponsor Blackstone organizing a forty billion dollar fund to invest in U.S. infrastructure. Just generally do you see the U.S. infrastructure market becoming a theater for geopolitical rivalry among countries contending for goodwill with the United States? Broadly, do you see that? I mean, would that apply? The transurbans of the world, who are kind of benign um, offshore capital, come under pressure as there are increasing number of suitors for infrastructure investment in the U.S.
7: I would say um, no, and I certainly hope not. Um, the places around the world where we see um, uh, politics drive those kinds of uh, decisions are places where um, countries where bribes are are um, prevalent in in those kinds of activities. Here in the U.S., and, and one of the, the strengths in the U.S. Um, is that we do have a sound system of procurement laws, um, where uh, decisions about um, the, the players involved in transportation will be made on value for taxpayers, not on on, on larger geopolitical issues. So I certainly hope that's, that's not the case.
3: Secretary Lane, what's your view and experience of it?
4: Well,
7: I think uh, international investors, for
4: the most part, are like any investor. They want a return on their money. Mm-hmm. And I think they're going to, to put it in those places where they see those returns. now. If those returns go beyond financial, that's probably above my pay grade right. <laughs> uh, and how they, they, they go in there. But um, uh, you know, again, I certainly, as Jen said, certainly hope not. Um, transportation, critical infrastructure, and I started this whole conversation about taking out ideology and politics. I'm not naive enough to think that all politics are, are out of it. But if that starts driving transportation decisions, um, then we have not. Uh, we've defeated the purpose of attracting this investment. Understood. And in there, so um, I think that it's most part. I think uh, 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 Skip and Jenna both. Just, uh, you're right. These are firms that put together funds, uh, and they are there to get a return for a public benefit, but a return for their investors, and they should. That's why people risk money. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, and that's what public-private partnerships are really about—a sharing of risks Mm -hmm. where they intersect. And I think there's a big opportunity where they can be done. The point, well
3: taken. It uh, when there's a political uh, return in the offering, that's something to watch carefully, isn't it? Well, we'd be very pleased to answer questions from anyone, and uh, I hope you've found this exchange stimulating. Are there any questions? Um, Just behind you, sir.
6: Good afternoon. I'm Steve Howard with uh, Barclays. Uh, Secretary uh, Lane um, actually made a very interesting comment about the reason why infrastructure investment, particularly roads in Australia, have been largely developed privately versus in this country, which was originally Kicked off with the uh, Eisenhower Interstate Program. I think there's another big factor in this country, and that's the availability of tax exempt financing mm-hmm. for the funding oh, of so. infrastructure of <clears throat> all sizes, shapes, and forms, ranging from a school district that can access the capital markets for a $500 million bond deal to the LaGuardia Central Terminal project, which tapped the same market for two and a half billion dollars. So it's a very unique and flexible funding source for infrastructure that's been used very successfully in this country. So I guess my question to the panel is uh, would you recommend as part of the Trump administration's policy initiative for uh, incentivizing P-3 private investment to include in the package uh, the expansion of the use of tax-exempt financing, not only for the construction of new projects, but for the uh, acquisition of existing up-and-running projects as part of the asset recycling program?
4: I can say resoundingly yes, um, and with one, with one caveat. Um, I think think as long as there is a public need, the private ought to be able to to get to the market. But I don't want to get it taught up in tax reform where they say, well, you know, we'll make the private sector monies more accessible by eliminating the the taxability of municipal debt. So I don't want it to go that way because then the projects are more expensive for everybody. But certainly I think that has been the key. TIFIA loans, we have an infrastructure bank. Works similar to a tiffi alone. Uh, I also think we continue to have grants make a big impact. But nonetheless, that is what I think will entice that low-cost cost capital will bring that capital over more than tax credits or anything else. So.
7: No, no, no question. The second, I would certainly strongly agree on this. That there's no question if the mini market was was enough to solve all our problems. We wouldn't be in a three trillion dollar infrastructure hole, right? And so, tools like Tiffy and Pabs have been very valuable in helping to move forward major projects in the U.S. I'm glad to see that the Trump administration has put out uh, the um, uh, proposals that would talk about um, releasing the cap on, on productivity bonds um, and, and putting more capital into the TIFIA program. But it's really important that the policy discussion does not end there. Um, you know, the 395 Express Lanes project that the Secretary is working on on now is not using TIFIA. Um, fortunately, it probably wouldn't have been viable if the Secretary uh, – the Virginia didn't have the Virginia Transportation Infrastructure Bank to fill the gap – You know, at federal level, we need to take um, significant steps from a policy perspective to ensure that we maximize, particularly, the TIFIA program, making sure that high-impact projects that create lots of jobs and lots of transportation impact and leverage a lot of private capital get to the front of the line in that process, and that there's some consistency in commercial terms so that borrowers know what to expect when they get at the table. It's not just about capitalizing it. It's making sure it works effectively to prioritize those big projects that are going to move the needle.
8: I, I concur. I wouldn't, uh, to the Secretary's point, I don't think the solution is do away with the tax exempt, uh, uh financing, but I think when we focus on investment, we ought to focus on uh, whether it's a public purpose, not whether it's public or private ownership, and if it's a public purpose, uh, we ought to treat the capital the same. Absolutely.
3: Yes. Uh, uh,
6: Art Gazzetti, I'm with the American Public Transportation Association. David, at the very beginning of the program, you you identified four uh, key policy principles, uh, uh, abbreviating them, accelerated permitting, incenting private sector participation, uh, credit support for projects, and removing impediments for P3s. All three of those are good. I can tell you my association endorses them all, Mm. and beyond that, embraces them all, looking for ways. But my point would be I don't think that's a comprehensive policy. I think that's part of a policy. And uh, uh, so I just in, in, invite the panel's views. I think if, if you do that approach, you'll get a lot of good projects, mm-hmm. but you won't get a balanced comprehensive transportation program that provides the economic benefits, which really is the goal uh, to begin with. So I, I just pose that uh, out there.
3: Yeah, I mean, like to to restate the question: What's the role for continued continued grant funding, and at what levels in the federal program, and should it be directed at assets that are historically subsidized, <clears throat> even if they require user fees, such as transit and the like? Um, you know, and where should that be directed? I mean, in, in your travels through Northern Virginia, which It'd be <laughs> on slow travels through and. <laughs> Well, transit
4: in northern Virginia, for example. Virginia gets $1.2 billion a year for the federal government. It represents about a third of our transportation funds and half our construction budget. So back to your point about having a balanced plan, we have to have a federal participation or we're not going to be able to deliver the program that we do. We have a prioritization process in the Commonwealth, and um, uh, it 's called smart scale, where we prioritize, which I think that should be part, and I think it is part of the president trump 's plan is to how we identify these high value uh, 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 transportation projects, and so we look at it relatively well this year, we had nine point five billion in requests, and we had a billion dollars to allocate, so you can see that the hole is pretty pretty big, even if you assume half those will need to be done i 'm not saying that it 's still a big hole. Um, so, and I think to start here, I think, Jen, your first comment was is that this is not going to be a substitute for sustainable funding, and it's going to take, I don't think there's any silver bullets, it's going to take these programs, it's going to take, I think, states, federal, user fees, I don't care if you call it a tax, a fee, uh, you know, or a license, um, it's just how many people you spread the pain over. And I typically believe, uh, in Virginia, it's a core function of government. And all branches of government are going to have to participate to fill the hole. So um, we're encouraged, but I, I would tend to agree it's not you know, a balance. If we get rid of grants, if we get cut back federal funding, I think we're, not, we're going to see a few shiny projects get done, um, but not going to really solve. I mean, most of ours is maintenance of existing infrastructure. We take half our construction monies each year and put it into not new uh, capacity, current system, it's gonna take us 10 years to start that uh, curve from declining to start going up. So it's a big hole.
8: I, I'd just make a comment, not on transportation, but on water and wastewater, where we have enormous needs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, my personal instinct is there's, there's not gonna be enough money forthcoming from the federal government to solve this problem. That, that's simply not gonna happen. The needs are, are too great and it's going to require a rethinking of how we're delivering those services locally there are 14,000 publicly owned treatment works in the US there are 50,000 water utilities smaller than 10,000 people in the US think about that 50,000 water utilities smaller than 10,000 people and that that is just not a model that is sustainable right? there's going to have to be a significant consolidation and regionalization in order to, to save money. And the in the water wastewater arena, the numbers are pretty pretty striking. We, we worked on a, we talk about it in the article, worked on a, a really a pretty small project in central Indiana, about 25,000 uh, citizens. And when they monetized their utility system, they got a $91 million payment, which they turned around and reinvested in civil infrastructure. And so I think there's a lot of self-help that can be done in the water-wastewater arena, particularly because there's such an opportunity for economies of scale and to drive efficiencies with global best practices. It really is pretty extraordinary about what you can do there. And interestingly, uh, there's an opportunity to do that simultaneously while providing uh, citizens with rate mitigation. That's becoming an increasingly common feature of water-wastewater transactions around the country are... Uh, taking proposed rate schedules and driving them down while simultaneously provide meaningful upfront payments. And each time you double the size of a utility, you take out about uh, 20% of the cost for the utility you bring in. And just think about that. 50,000 utilities serving small communities, the ability to consolidate and regionalize. There's billions and billions and billions of dollars uh, that can be tapped in those systems to do additional infrastructure work get the lead pipes out of the system, eliminate combined sewer overflows, and do the other things that need to be done. Time for one more or two more and then we'll adjourn. Go ahead, sir.
5: How would you integrate broadband technology system services in the diversity of local areas? from rural area to large. And how do you integrate them in a national policy infrastructure, if
3: ever I have an answer to that. Can, oh. a, can a moderator answer Go to ahead, go answer. ahead. Yeah, sure, please. Um, I think this is pertinent to your line of work, uh, Mr. Secretary. It said that the, the gateway for constructing a, a national broadband network is our transportation assets. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working now on a broadband public-private partnership for the Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission that wishes to lay along the entire length of the 330-mile turnpike of conduit fiber and the like to serve rural areas as well as commercially viable areas. And it's, um, I I think that is the the vehicle for instituting um, or advancing access to broadband. Uh, so state DOTs should be incented to do that.
4: We just passed along Virginia this year uh, that allowed the distribution system a more accessible fee. In fact, my Deputy Secretary Nick Donahue worked a lot on that, uh, putting this broadband access, particularly in the rural areas, it's the distribution system that's the issue, not the source. It's the, And then you have to worry about how many competitors you give that to because you don't want a monopolistic arena out there. but no doubt the transportation network in Virginia we have almost 60,000 miles that we control can be a big big help in getting that distribution so we're focused on that. Thank you Rex up
2: Northern Resource. Uh, Jennifer this question is to you. you talked about some specific programs as one of the leading infrastructure investors in the United States certainly. Would you be able to expound more upon your, your broader strategy and where you see the opportunities going forward, especially seeing the, the changed emphasis on infrastructure in the United States? Thank you.
7: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, we uh, – as we look at our um, – uh, the next few years as a company, you know, our focus, I'll, I'll tell you, first in uh, – priority focus is in the Australian market, where we see is um, uh, a extensive uh, pipeline of major projects moving forward in the next few years. Um, but at the same time, we're also turning our eyes to the U.S. because we have long believed and continue to believe um, that uh, the private sector can play a very meaningful role in helping to to dig us uh, out of our $3 trillion hole here. Um, and I'm optimistic, and I'll disclaim that by saying that most people in the transportation industry are, are extremely patient, and we are relentless uh, by nature. We have to be to be able to get these projects done. But I, I continue to be optimistic that the U.S. market will open to meaningful investment opportunities. And Transurban is certainly optimistic that's the case. Because in the U.S., the, the market is so big here that it would only take um, a couple of policy shifts um, to be able to open up that market to meaningful opportunities. The example I talked about late earlier, in the toll road space, top 10 toll road assets, 260 to $280 billion of value. You take that nationally, that's going to be $500 billion of value. You have a small shift in policy that opens up opportunities in the U.S. Um, uh, for private capital, and will have some real meaningful opportunities. So I certainly hope uh, that with some of these policy changes, um, our future is bright here in the U.S.
4: I'll make one comment on that, because it's two things that Skip and Jennifer mentioned. It's certainty of execution and that's about developing the expertise and her having the confidence that when she spends all this money researching because i'm telling you they'll spend tens of millions sometimes in developing a project That's certainty of execution which means taking political risk out so that they know if they're going to develop this project it's going to go through the normal process and i think that's the key and the two things uh, uh relate to that are having expertise because I think she'll tell you they don't want to go to a state and spend all this time and then all of a sudden politically find they can't get it done. So that goes to what Skip was talking about. And then it needs to be a process that they understand. And when they get through the end, they know we're not going to have something come up
7: after we've done all this and not happen. So I tell you, we've also been looking at um, – uh, really hard because we're an Australian-based company. We have uh, we've put 30,000 people to work here in the U.S. We have a lot of Americans, and a lot of Australians looking on how to how to solve infrastructure problems. And I get frustrated because I think, what is the secret in Australia? Why are they able to move these projects forward in two years when it takes us ten years? And I to just want sort to of defend a little ethnic ethnocentric comment here, but I want to defend the U.S. a little bit here in this conversation because I had one of our clients from. Uh, Australia come here and we sat down with uh, some professionals at USDOT who who are involved in the TIFIA program. And he was sharing an experience in New South Wales and how he and his colleagues get together and they can solve these transportation issues and, and uh, agree policies on how to move projects forward. He said, you know, there's really three or four or five of us that can sit down and, and really talk through some of these things. And the gentleman from USDOT looked across from him and he says, yeah, we represent 57,000 local jurisdictions. <laughs> he goes, there's more than three or four or five of us that have oh, yeah. to sit down <laughs> and make those decisions. So the the US, by the very nature of the The beautiful, huge country that we have has uh, challenges that we have to address. But at the core of what the solution there is, if you take the Australian lesson, is less decision makers in the process. And some of the Trump administration's uh, proposals and some of the things that I know that that people on the ground, we uh, talk about a lot, is how do you make sure at the federal level We make a single agency have the ability to trump, excuse the pun, uh, decisions of other agencies. How do you, you look at, or to look at deferring some things to the state pilot programs in Virginia and, or in Texas and California, other places where you have single decision makers that can move things forward and you're not stuck in this, um, uh, uh, debate in this conflict between a dozen different federal agencies when you're moving these big projects forward. So we can't take all their lessons because we have 330 million people in 50 states and 57,000 local jurisdictions, but we can simplify the number of decision makers involved at the federal level. And if we can find ways to do that, um, you know, they'll create opportunities for investors like us to help solve this problem.
3: Well, fingers crossed. Uh, There's reason to be optimistic. I want to thank each of you For spending time with us today. Thank you very much indeed. And many thanks to Hudson for hosting us today.